2: All right, well, we know that one of the ballot measures that passed in several states was legalizing marijuana. New Jersey was among them. So we thought it'd be nice to talk to somebody who has expertise in this, not just recently, but really from the very start, from when the very first state legalized marijuana. Wanda James is founder and CEO of Simply Pure Dispensary in Colorado. And Wanda, welcome. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Absolutely great. So talk to us about a business. First of all, in just in your area, how has it been since the beginning of the pandemic? How have you managed to, to ride this out? So, you know,
1: it's, it's interesting because at the very beginning of the pandemic, I think that most of the business here in Colorado, you know, dropped to ridiculously low levels. Um, and then the mayor of Denver actually shut down dispensaries for about four hours. And the rush of people that came to the dispensaries and liquor stores was so overwhelming that Denver actually and Colorado, um, and I guess most places at this point, called the cannabis businesses essential businesses, and we remained open during the pandemic. Our sales um, have soared. Uh, people have found that cannabis helps them get through. Um, a pandemic and isolation and all of the things that we're dealing with. And then being a black-owned business, um, we have found that so many people have been looking to support black-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, and today, because it's Veterans Day, veterans-owned businesses, which is what we are. So it has actually, um, business-wise during the pandemic, Um, I believe cannabis has done very well.
2: So Wanda, you've you've been in it since the very beginning. You're an absolute expert in how to do this. When you saw that ballot measures on legalizing marijuana passed in several states, did it make you, you know, happy, I guess, from your point of view, that more states are legalizing it? Or is it a step backwards in the sense that it is taking um, a step away from having it recognized at a federal level?
1: Um, I don't know that it stops it from being recognized at a federal level. I believe that this is the course that is going to let politicians know on the federal level that it is time. Um, You know, I believe, and, and, and don't quote me, there may be one or two, but I believe in just about every state in the nation right now, Um, There are cannabis laws on the books, meaning that it's either decriminalized, so you won't go to jail for possessing it. Um, It's medically legal that you can buy it for medicinal purposes or that it is legal in the adult use market, which means that anybody over the age of 21 can purchase. Mm. So, you know, most Americans right now have have access to legal cannabis. So the federal level needs to get on board and follow what now I believe it's um, almost up at 70%. 68% of Americans right now want to see full legalization across America. And as you know, 68% of Americans don't agree on anything apparently except for cannabis.
2: (laughs) That's for sure. Wanda, have you managed to stay solo or how is Simply Pure looking at the next 5 to 10 years? Are you, you know going to expand, maybe move into other states? Have you done that already?
1: Yes, so this is a big place for us right now. We've been doing this now for 10 years. We were the first African-Americans legally licensed in America to own a dispensary, a grow facility, um, and an edible company. And so now we are poised um, for national growth. Um, Over the next few months, we will be looking at um, a a national prospect to be able to move um, Simply Pure stores and products Um, throughout the United States. So we were absolutely thrilled to see more states legalized because with legalization also brings, um, you know, uh, less opportunity for police harassment. Um, And quite frankly, given the fact that 42% of all black businesses in America have failed during the pandemic, we see cannabis entrepreneurism as a way of revitalizing The black and brown communities by allowing them to have these types of businesses.
2: Well, Wanda, uh, how are you looking at doing this? Has private equity approached you? You know, might you think even about going public at some point through a SPAC or or one of those types of entities?
1: Yeah, so right now, you know, for the most part, it's all private equity. Um, You know, there's a, a few, you know, public companies out of Canada that are currently investing. Um, but you know, it's still private equity because as of today, uh, we can't go to a bank and get a loan. Heck, I can't even go to a bank and get a credit card for my business. Yeah. So, and in most cases, we have a legal bank account, which allows us to deposit, but most businesses don't even have a legal bank account in which they can deposit funds. So these are all of the reasons why legalization has to happen when you have a multi-billion dollar business. Here in Colorado, we do an excess of $2 billion in sales in the state. Um, California will do well over $10 billion. So when you start to look at these kind of numbers, and we don't even have bank accounts, credit cards, ATM cards, lines of credit... It seems absurd that we are still discussing whether this business should be legal or not when Americans have been using cannabis now since George Washington.
2: And this is, of course, because of state rules on banking, which go back for, you know, decades and generations. Wanda, very, very briefly, uh, wanted to ask you about supply and whether that had been a problem during the pandemic if if farmers weren't able to keep on staff and so on.
1: So here in Colorado, no. Um, You know, we are a finely tuned machine here in Colorado. Um, you know, I will say that we did definitely, uh, you know, supply and demand. So the price of cannabis definitely skyrocketed through the summer months because of the demand for flour. Um, what we found, um, at least in my dispensary, is that the sales of, when we say flour, actual bud, um, mm-hmm. more than doubled So um, we saw a rise in edibles and in bait pens as well, too. But the the sale of flour actually went through the ceiling. So while we were able to manage demand um, and we also have our own grow facility, it was still (laughs) demand is definitely up.
2: Wanda, just wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you for giving us your time. Much appreciated. Wanda James is founder and CEO of Simply Pure Dispensary in Colorado. Opened 10 years ago, in fact. Well, let's get back to the markets now and bring in Jim Paulson, CIO of the Lutold Group. Jim, where are we at? It's been just a fascinating few weeks, months, and indeed few days. Just just Friday and Monday sessions alone would have you scratching your head wondering what's going to happen next. What do you think, Will?
3: <laughs> you know, Vani, I, I kind of think that the, the big elephant in the room is the pace of economic growth more than anything else. We've got so many issues going on, but... We, of course, had a super strong third quarter, and quite frankly, we're halfway through the fourth quarter, and a lot of momentum is still very evident in the economy. Uh, most of the reports that come out every day, whether it's ISMs or employment or confidence reports, uh, remain very strong. Um, and I think that's going to be the key. If, if the economy, you know, the expectation for the fourth quarter might be around 3%, I think it might be more like 5 or 6 for the fourth quarter. And if it is, I think that's going to continue to be a really positive force for the market uh, overall. And, you know, I think in some degree that reflects some of the change in leadership that we're seeing here a little bit uh, starting to become more pronounced. Um, You know, certainly the vaccine helps, but we also are going to have the lagged impact of past stimulus that's going to help us next year. We've got a a 15% savings rate out there. It could be spent, there's virtually the inventory to GDP ratios at almost record lows. So if that is spent on no inventory, that could have quite an impact. You're seeing a fair number of confident behaviors being displayed by both consumers, laborers, and businesses. Uh, Consumers are buying big tickets. Uh, Laborers, the job lever rates climbing. The more people now say jobs are plentiful and hard to get. Businesses, capital good orders just went to new highs. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a sustainable sign as well uh, overall. So I think there's a fair number of positive forces against rising COVID cases. Uh, to keep What makes you strong, think it's it? so
2: sustainable though, Jim? And what is this market thinking when you have a million cases in Texas alone, a million cases now in all of Italy, which means, you know, it's, it's back with a vengeance in Europe, and it's probably only a matter of time before it's back with a, a vengeance in various other places. It's already exponential in the United States. So what makes you think that the economy can, can continue to recover like it was?
3: Well, I may be wrong, and it could certainly get bad enough that, you know, if we have to shut down economic activity like we did in March again, that would be a disaster. But I don't think we're going to get there, Bonnie. I You know, we had a surge in March up to around 30,000 cases. That created the death rate of about 2,500 a day on average at the peaks. The second surge in the summer went up to 65,000 cases, more than double but the death rate fell in more than more than a half to around a thousand or a little over. Now we're at 125,000 daily cases, and death rate still around a thousand. So I I don't I think it reflects the fact that we've gotten a lot better of uh, dealing with this. We protect more vulnerable groups than we did earlier. We we uh, we also have better treatments available uh, to to lower the lethality of this thing. Which and then there's there's just a lot of the things we might shut down are already shut down you know we've got a lot of places where restaurant capacity is 25 or 50 percent we can't probably do a lot more there so i really think we're not going to have a meaningful nationwide shutdown that radically uh, reduces economic growth like we did in march
2: so, if you had dry powder, or if you were thinking of taking some profit somewhere, where would you put that money now, Jim, in order to try and take advantage of what you see as an improving situation?
3: Well, I think it's important to remain barbelled. I, I still think I think tech uh, is going to underperform over the next year because the economy picks up. It's going to favor the earnings growth of broader market plays, but I don't think it's going to fall apart. I don't think it's going to collapse. I think it's just going to underperform. I, I think a day like today is a great example of why you still want to own some technology. But over the case, I think small cap stocks, um, cyclical sectors, particularly the financials, the industrials, and materials, I think are very good places to look. And I would also start to lift my international exposure, particularly in emerging markets, excluding China. I think China is going to underperform next year. Um, but the other emerging markets probably do pretty well um, overall. I think there's a, a bountiful list of opportunities in part because this market's been so concentrated among uh, mega caps. It's left a lot of the marketplace, I think, that still has a lot of value, and they have greater cyclical earnings leverage here for going into 2021.
2: Are we completely dependent on the Federal Reserve, though, Jim? And we, we only really have a half a minute left.
3: Um I don't believe so. I I think that the Fed's going to have to back away, Bonnie. If economy remains relatively healthy, I think it's going to have to slow um, bond purchases, quantitative easing, and allow bond yields to climb. They might already be starting to do that a little bit. I think we're going to have bond yields go up next year. And uh, if they do, that could actually build confidence. If we go back above a 1% treasure, I think people worry less about negative yields. It will also be a sign of economic strength that could fuel more animal spirits.
2: Jim, it's always lovely chatting with you. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I forgot to ask you how everything is in, in your home state, but I guess we'll have to do that the next time. That is Jim Poulson, CIO of the Luthold Group. Well, we're getting a lot of vaccine news in the last few days, which, on the one hand, is fabulous, but perhaps we should hit the brakes just a little bit. We'll see with our next guest, who heads up the global sector leadership for healthcare at Third Bridge. Let's welcome now Jaylan Mamadova. Jaylan, this vaccine news from Pfizer and also Moderna, we know is is coming close to, you know, being able to announce something, and there are plenty more companies out there being able to announce antibody type therapeutics or, or vaccines in the next while. Talk to us about the downsides of this current spate of news.
4: Thanks for having me, Vani. So definitely the market is
2: reacting a bit
4: too early with as has been the case with all the news around COVID. This is good news in that this could serve as a positive nod to all of the vaccine t- candidates targeting the spike protein. So definitely a positive nod for the pipeline. But without that data on efficacy for the elderly, durability, and additional safety collection, which will probably continue even if an FDA UAE is granted, it is definitely too soon to call this a winner. Um, also, to note that this requires some ultra cold storage requirements, and that may present additional challenges. So, if we do have a candidate with more convenient dosing, easier storage, better efficacy in elderly, and better durability, this will definitely hit Pfizer with whatever initial uptake they. We- take on. Now, we do expect an EUA, but it's probably going to be limited, as we saw with Lilly's EUA earlier on, on their monoclonal antibody, essentially so, restricting this to people of certain severity. Yes.
2: Well, well, I was just going to ask on the storage, because this will be a problem even in places like CVS and, and so on. What companies are working on this problem, storing something at a reasonable price at minus, what, <laughs> between 70 and, and 100 degrees
4: yeah, it's minus 70 Celsius. Moderna is another minus 20 Celsius. So actually Pfizer and Moderna are trying to tweak this and bring it, bring this up to a more manageable temperature where hospitals are not going to have to buy additional, you know, fridges and storage equipment to make this a viable vaccine candidate. But when you look at Merck, Merck actually has had to use uh, ultra cold storage uh, for its uh, Ebola vaccine. But Uh, they were never able to to tweak it. And ultimately, this may not be as big of a challenge as they do well on the efficacy front. There's definitely a way of circumventing this. Again, with Merck, they were able to distribute to DL Congo, right? In the U.S., they're much uh, better kind of storage capability. Having said that, though, it doesn't really seem like they can tweak this any more than it is. Now, Moderna does have an upper hand in this in that it is negative 20 Celsius, so it's not extreme as Pfizer. But having said that, they have um, additional issues when it comes to uh, potential distribution and manufacturing. But ultimately, it's going to come down to their contracting, uh, contracting and manufacturing relationships that are in place, and our experts are pretty skeptical that they can tweak the, the, the storage uh, requirements if that would require additional engineering capabilities.
2: I know, it's fascinating, right? And the idea that there's a lot of short interest in Moderna would also give you pause. I mean, there's obviously a big contingent of money, be it smart money or dumb money out there, that is betting against Moderna. So what is your thinking on when we'll have something workable, Jelan? When we will
4: have something workable, if, if we define that as something that's available for mass distribution, so let's say... Right now, you know, Pfizer has signed some supply agreements um, around uh, promising to supply around 600 million doses by mid-next year. Um, Really we're thinking about mass administration probably Q3 of of next year at earliest. Um, And that's across the patient population. So maybe mid-next year, um, some form of dosing available for uh, the at-risk or the in-need population. So those are the healthcare workers and the elderly.
2: So really, even though it was good news and, you know, we have to have this good news before we can get the next little bit of good news, it really doesn't speed up the process at all more than, more than we thought. It just means that we are still on the right path.
4: Yeah, that's exactly what it's the right path, but it doesn't speed anything. If anything, we've been consistently seeing delays um, with promises for readouts earlier on, and those have been pushed back with Pfizer-BioNTech really being case in point.
2: Mm. What are you doing at Third Bridge in terms of investment or in terms of advising on investment? So at Third Bridge, we don't directly advise on investment. What we do help with is the
4: due diligence component for our institutional investors, and we speak to experts that give guidance across the vaccine place. So most recently, for example, we have been focusing on Merck and uh, Novavax ca- vaccine candidates. Well, for the Merck, while it is a later entrance, their VSP platform and their v- measles-based platform actually could potentially bode well when it comes to, you know, single dosage and uptake in the elderly uh, based on the efficacy that they have shown with their proven platform. They also potentially have an oral formulation. And we've also been focusing on Novavax um, for a while now because their antibody responses have been pretty amazing and we... Uh, We weren't surprised by the FCA fast track designation, which they received uh, earlier this week.
2: Jalan, we're pretty much out of time, but can you give us a rundown very briefly on the companies that are concentrating on things like distribution and refrigeration so we can continue to keep an eye on those too?
4: Yeah, for sure. So right now, the, the main focus is Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna and their supplier relationships with certain CDMOs. But those storage requirements and manufacturing of them will actually come down to the biopharma itself and the capabilities that they have at hand. And again, case in point is is Merck with their ultra-cold storage solution.
2: Wow, amazing. So it's the companies themselves that are going to have to solve that problem. Jaylan, thank you for joining us. We do hope to catch up with you again very soon. Jaylan Mamadova is Global Sector Lead for Healthcare at
0: Third Bridge.
2: well the president-elect is extraordinarily close to veterans this on veterans day no better person to talk to about what might happen under a biden presidency for veterans than toby harshaw this of course as well as president trump and vice president mike pence took a tour of arlington national cemetery for the the day that was in it toby you know barring some kind of strange thing happening it does look like we're going to get a biden presidency which means possibly some good news for veterans is there something that biden will put on his list to get accomplished for these people that are still experiencing hardships and suffering and almost discrimination weirdly you know so many generations after their problems were first uh, brought to light
5: uh, thanks, Bonnie. Um, I'm happy to be here. Um, I wish that Biden had said um, anything that was more specific during the campaign. He said all of the right things, um, but, but sort of deep generalizations that um, you know, veterans need the jobs that they need, they, they need the care that they deserve, things like that. But there really wasn't anything specific. Um, it's, it's not a huge campaign issue.
2: No, it's not. What is the biggest need for veterans right now, Toby?
5: Um, I, I think sort of the overriding topic is mental health care. Mm. Um, you know as we know, the the veterans have uh, a higher suicide rate than the population uh, in general. Um, you know, PTSD is now finally considered, uh, a legitimate diagnosis. Um, and, uh, it, it's just, it's very hard, um, A, to supply enough health care, and B, often the trick is bringing people into mental health care. Um, veterans, not, uh, not to be cliched about it, but veterans tend to be, you know, think of themselves as tough and self-sufficient. Um, and it's often hard to bring people into, you know, a, a sort of broad-based mental health care.
2: Yeah, it's, um, I mean, there's so many problems out there. But, you know, if anyone should have a stake in our national defence, or at least, you know, an opinion we should listen to, it's our veterans. What do they think of the military changes that we're seeing right now, or the changes of the Pentagon? Um, and and what, what, what should be there instead?
5: Yeah, well, I don't want to. I don't want to to lump them all sure, into one course. voice or one opinion. And there's not really polling on this. Um, I would imagine there's deep dissatisfaction, especially with the shenanigans that Trump has been up to this week. Um, you know, it, it's funny that that Mark Esper was called Yesper um, behind mm-hmm. his back and considered this Trump loyalist, and yet now Trump has fired him for not being sufficiently loyal and put in um, a replacement who I, I don't want to say unqualified, but certainly underqualified. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I just don't think this makes anyone happy, um, inside the services polling is, is, is done. Um, it's a little bit sketchy, um, I guess as polling is everywhere these days, yeah. but, um, there's, there's little question that president Trump's, um, uh, ratings among the officer class um, declined heavily over his four years yeah. um, to no depths probably that any Republican um, has any Republican incumbent has reached uh, certainly in in modern history.
2: That brings us to Biden and and you know yes I am not uh, we we could talk for a long time about about how President Trump treated the military and and the arms of the military. But let's let's talk about Biden. Will Biden's, you know, domestic policy and foreign policy, national security policy as it relates to the various branches of the military, will it be significantly different to what we have now?
5: Yeah, I mean, the, the headline issue is the remaining troops in Afghanistan. Um, and Biden's, uh, you know, the positions that he put out on the campaign trail weren't all that much different than Trump's. He'd like to bring them home. But unlike Trump, he puts a greater emphasis on the on-the-ground conditions um, and simply making sure that Afghanistan won't collapse um, as soon as our troops are gone. Remember, there's not that many. There's about 12,000, um, which is not to not to belittle the sacrifice and the danger that they're facing. Um, but compared to the height of these two wars, um, it's, it's, it's a fairly, you know, in, I don't want to say insignificant. It's a very small amount of troops left there. In, in terms of broader issues, um, there were a lot of concerns, I think, about the Pentagon budget um, being slashed if the Democrats uh, won the presidency and um, took control of Congress. And I'm, I'm not particularly worried about that. Um, the Pentagon. Uh, budget came out of uh, Congress the other day for 2021. It was 670 was the top line, and then you know when you factor in the war funding plus the money that goes to uh, the nuclear program and the Energy Department, it's gonna it's gonna be about 730 million, which is about tied for the highest it's ever been. Um, Democrats will want to pull back on that a little bit, but I wouldn't imagine by more than a percentage or two. Um, I think the bigger changes are going to be on what that money is spent on. Um, and I think we're going to see some big-ticket items, you know, trimmed back. That would be the aircraft carriers, um, the brigade combat groups, the, the things that are the, that are super money-intensive. Um, and I think that will, you know, that will go to things that get better bang for the bunk, better bang for the buck, which mm-hmm. is drones for the most part, and not just little drones like we think of, but um, submarines, uh, long-range strategic bombers. Lots of things can be done um, unmanned.
2: So essentially, we'll be returning to the Obama. Era for that type of uh, policy. Yeah,
5: um, I, I think we will. I think the Pentagon has always been headed in that direction. Um, I think there's a lot of politics involved. You have to remember that the in that gigantic $700 billion. Um, uh, Pentagon spending bill. Almost every penny of it is accounted for by Congress, and says this has to go to this, this has to go to that, this has to go to that, um, and um, more flexibility is what the Pentagon really needs. Um, Pentagon, the Congress has to allow the Pentagon to spend that, you know, almost a trillion dollars in um, in the ways that it feels it needs to.
2: Toby, will Joe Biden be any more interventionist than? President Obama, because Ob- President Obama made it made it you know <laughs> a high bar to intervene.
5: Yeah, um, well, you know we we did intervene in Libya. Um, I would say no. I don't think so. I, I think interventionism is is out of favor um, with both parties at this point. Um, I think that um, there will be a, a much bigger emphasis now on um, using diplomacy and especially on using alliances um, to shore up America's security needs, particularly in terms of, of China, but also Russia. Um, I think that the big the big change will be that you know, as I said, President Trump basically tried to extort um, our aid. Allies, Japan, and, and South Korea by making them pay more money to host U.S. troops, and that pressure, I think, will be relieved. And it was an idiotic strategy, um, not to put too fine a point on it, because it's cheaper actually to store our troops to have our troops stationed abroad than it is to keep them at home. And we have to pay them no matter where they are. And there's huge security dividends played by that.
2: Toby, it's a fascinating conversation we just had. I'd love to have longer. I'd love to talk about the Middle East as well, because that the, you know it, it may not be front of mind given all of the uh, the various parts of the world that are front of mind but it's definitely going to be something that the Biden administration will have to have a plan for. Toby Harshaw is Bloomberg Opinion Editor here for Bloomberg Opinion. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, c COA and more. Summit advisors include Citi and Schneider Electric. Visit bloomberglive.com slash 2024 to learn more.